The Last Visit by Conrad Aiken. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Amy Dunkelberger. The Last Visit by Conrad Aiken. Marie Schley sat in the Watertown car by the open grilled window. It was a sunny afternoon, the first Saturday in October. Clouds of dust swooped over Mount Auburn Street, flew into the car, made the passengers cough. On the Charles River, an eight-oared crew was rowing round the blue turn, crawling like a centipede. The voice of the coxswain could be heard, the blades flashed irregularly. A subdued, many-throated clamor came raggedly across the flat fields from the stadium, suddenly rose in tents on a higher note, then died slowly away. A football game must be going on there. Yes, there were the usual kites flying, flashing high over the stadium. How familiar it all was! It made her feel slightly sad, and yet also she could not conceal from herself that she was much freer to enjoy its beauty, to enjoy it as merely a spectacle than had ever been possible for her in the past. It was familiar, but now that she lived so far away, and came so seldom, it was also remote. It had now an atmosphere, she said almost aloud, an atmosphere. It was no longer so dreadfully a part of her own being. It was true there had been a time, the first year that she was in Boston, when she was twelve, a time when going to Watertown to see grandmother was a positive joy. Even that, however, hadn't been so much a fondness for grandmother as a delight in the queer musty old furniture, the animacassars, the tussocks, the rosy conch shells on the gray carpet, of an extraordinary size and used as door-fenders, and above all, grandmother's passion for good food. The cherries, for which Marie with the pail used to climb the tree, the plain apple pie, the coffee cake so richly crusted with spiced sugar. Grandmother always called it kuchen. Certainly these had been very important items. Even then she had been on her guard, reserved with grandmother. There had never been any question of an intimacy between them. Grandmother had always been hard and childlike. All her life she had had that peculiar inaptitude for intimacy and sympathy which accompanies the child's lack of consciousness. Visiting her during the school holidays later, Marie had gradually, as she grew older, seen this hardness clearly enough. Grandmother's hardness, ah, it was really almost a meanness, had called forth or implanted a meanness in herself. It had often seemed to her that grandmother was cruel. How much those cruelties, which were wholly of a psychological sort, had been deliberate, or how much they had been simply the natural effect, unconscious, of a hard, callous, defeated old woman on a young and shy and sensitive one, she had never known. Nor had she ever known, to tell the truth, whether, if she herself had been less of an egoist, she might not have discovered more sharply in her grandmother the shy and affectionate girl, with remarkably nice blue eyes, who occasionally laughed there and then took flight, 
Later still, when she was going to college, she had in a measure escaped the antipathy, had been able to challenge it laughingly, and had worked a decided and delightful change in her relations with the old woman. Grandmother's meanness, she had found, could often be undermined by laughter. Her sense of humor, or at any rate of the ridiculous, was delicious. She was the only woman Marie knew who often and literally laughed till she cried. Marie, ever since her college days, had used this discovery skillfully. She had been free to make the discovery and to use it, in some unaccountable way, just after her return from a trip to Europe. Was it simply that then at last she had forced Grandmother to accept her as grown-up and an equal? At all events, it had led to a kindliness between them. Yes, they had had a few pleasant days together. If they had formerly hated one another, quarreled savagely, ah, those frightful quarrels over nothing, quarrels had passed. Grandmother had, growing older, grown gentler. She herself, feeling herself to be superior, had learned to tolerate the flashes of cruelty and meanness. And now it was all to be ended. Watertown was to be rolled away. The dusty ride along Mount Auburn Street was to become less familiar, forgotten. Grandmother was going to die. A month, two months, five. Watertown was changing extraordinarily. Her sense of its sharp difference, its newness, was a kind of reproach, for it seemed to hint that Grandmother had been neglected. If she had come oftener, seen the new houses being built, new cellars being dug, new streets being surveyed, she would not, she felt sure, be now so struck by its complete alteration. How horribly suburban it was, with all its rows of cheap two-family houses, loathsome, shoddy little stucco garages, forlorn little barbary hedges, rows of one-storied little shops built of garish brick, all this evidence of pullulating vulgarity, where in her childhood had been green fields, hill pastures with tumbled stone walls, wild cherries, and in autumn, thickets starred with the candid blue stars of chicory. She remembered a walk with Uncle Tom from Harvard Square to Grandmother's when she was twelve. What an adventure in the wilderness! The hills between Belmont and Watertown were covered with juniper and birch trees. Skirting Palfrey Hill, they had come into Watertown past the old graveyard. It had seemed like coming down from a morning's walk on the Himalayas. And what were all these changes for? What did it lead to? It seemed as if men were determined to trample and vulgarize every inch of the world. She remembered that seventeenth, or was it eighteenth century song in an old songbook. By the waters of Watertown we sat down and wept. Yea, we wept when we remembered Boston. Poor grandmother! It was as well, perhaps, that she had so long been a prisoner to her stuffy little antimacassared room, with its albums of daguerreotypes. She would have hated this change. Ah, uh, but would she? Would she? It was not so certain. Grandmother was a born provincial, a village democrat. Perhaps she would have liked this show of energy, in which there was no pretense and nowhere any distinction. 
it would perhaps have pleased her to see that Watertown, so palpably, was growing. The churches would thrive. The markets would improve. Marie got off at Palfrey Street and began climbing the hill. The mysterious brook, which used to flow under the street, full of old rusted pots and lidless tin cans, was gone. She climbed slowly, not so rapidly as when she used to run up Palfrey Hill before breakfast to look for wildflowers. Silverrod used to grow on Palfrey Hill, the only place she had ever seen it. That was before Grandmother had moved away from the house on Mount Auburn Street, with the cherry tree and the pear tree, and the owners, with whom Grandmother perpetually quarreled and bickered, living in the other half of the house, playing the piano till all hours and carrying on something awful. Marie wondered what they had been like. Probably they were very nice, cheerful people. One of the daughters was a Christian science healer, the son worked in a music store. To Marie there had always been something romantic about them, and she had never passed their door in the hall without wanting to knock and go in. Once she had gone in, all that she remembered was a plaster bust of a god or goddess who seemed, on top of the piano, to be meditating. There had always been a dog, which Grandmother detested and always shook her apron at. Pooh! "'Get out, you dirty beast!' she would cry, an expression of extraordinary hatred on her face. Marie laughed, thinking of this. She passed the weeping birch. Its leaves were touched with yellow. Slightly out of breath, she climbed the wooden steps and rang the bell. Two. "'Oh, it's you, Mrs. Schley. How do you do? You're quite a stranger.' I think Mrs. Vedder's asleep, but I'll go and see. I'm sure she'll be delighted to see you. Mrs. Ling was detestable. That she was fearfully overworked managing this private hospital, and that she was herself slowly dying, having lost in her last operation all her insides, as Grandmother put it, did not make her more likable. A sly white face, with sly black eyes, a meager soul. Marie, standing in the suburban little hall, looked at the pious engravings, the cheap rugs. Above the mantel, Christ was leaning down, much haloed, into the valley of the shadow of death, reaching an incredibly long arm to rescue a lost lamb. Over the dark valley hung a dove with bright wings. A pot of ferns stood on a small, high bamboo table near the piano. The piano was a florid affair of pale oak. Marie looked at the music. The Holy City, Alexander's Ragtime Band, Cuddle Up a Little Closer, The Rosary. Here, at any rate, the piano would not be played till all hours. No, your grandmother's awake. Will you go up? How is grandmother? Well, about the same. She's very plucky. In the sick room... With its gloom of lowered blinds, Marie at first found it difficult to see. The nurse hovered by the front window, smiling. Grandmother in the great bed turned the small shrunken face on the pillow, turned the pathetic blue eyes of a child, the forlorn little braid of streaked hair. Marie stooped and kissed the sunken, weak mouth. "'Hello, Grandmother!' 
she shouted, remembering that the old woman was deaf. Are you glad to see me? Grandmother looked up in a bewildered, slightly frightened way, as if she were peering up out of a depth. What did you say? The voice was slow and faint. I said, are you glad to see me? Oh, yes, always glad to see you. I'm always glad to see you. How are you feeling? Grandmother slowly and gently focused her blue eyes, her pupils were very wide, on Marie's face. She seemed to be trying to see. She moved her lips and then said weakly, Very bad. I can't eat. You can't eat? Why is that? Marie drew the chair closer to the bedside, determined to be cheerful. Mrs. Vetter fumbled with her thin, trembling hand at the patchwork quilt, fumbled aimlessly, her eyes resting exploringly on Marie's face. It was as if she were struggling for speech with a profound, dark indifference. "'How's little Kate?' she quavered. "'Oh, Kate's fine. She gets all over the house now, holding on to chairs and things.' When we take her to the beach in her little bathing suit, she crawls right into the water as if it were her native element. You never saw such courage and energy. I wish I could see her. She ought to be walking, oughtn't she? Oh, no, she's not backward at all. No, I suppose not. I wish I could see her. Is her hair the same color? Her hair was such a beautiful color. "'Something like yours when you were little, only not so red. "'I suppose you can't bring her up to town. "'No, it's not very easy, you see.' "'Marie, looking through the side window by the bed, "'watched a gray squirrel running along the maple bough. "'It's my teeth. I can't use my teeth. "'That's why I talk so badly.' The dentist was here last week. He said my jaw had shrunk and this set of teeth wouldn't fit any more. Oh, what a shame, Granny. But can't you have them altered? I can't afford it. They charge me so much here. It's wicked what they charge here. Miss Thomas, the nurse, approached, holding a spoon and medicine glass. Time for my little girl to take her medicine, she said, dipping the teaspoon. What good does medicine do me? Now you take it like a good girl. There. That's right. Mrs. Vetter sank back, exhausted, the blue-veined hands lying inert. After a moment, her eyes filled with tears. Little Kate, she wailed, how I wish. She began crying, weakly and uncontrollably. Miss Thomas wiped her cheeks for her, Marie drawing back. She cries a great deal, said Miss Thomas in a low voice. She gets an idea, you know, and just thinks and thinks about it and cries and cries. Especially little Kate. She's always wanting to see your little Kate. Now, Grandmother, stop crying. You don't want to spoil your granddaughter's visit. The first time she's been here in so long, do you? No, I can't help it. Marie began thinking of one Sunday in the Mount Auburn Street house, seventeen or eighteen years before. 
they were having an apple pie for dinner a warm sunny day she remembered the pear tree in blossom your grandfather whom you don't remember always used to say well there's nothing i like so much as plain apple pie how furious it made me he said it because he knew it infuriated me grandmother snorted in a rage plain apple pie i said to him there's nothing plain about it what do you know about cooking you think a plain apple pie can just be thrown together by anybody i'd like to see how many women could make a pie like this but she added he went right on gabbling about plain apple pie plain apple pie marie had laughed and grandmother relenting or shaking off the past had suddenly laughed also on sundays grandmother always played on a little parlor organ the seven or eight hymn tunes she knew singing in a thin distressing voice the organ had been sold when grandmother was moved to the hospital other things had been sold too grandmother's possessions had become very few three or four chairs the horsehair sofa a what-not laden with family photographs a framed lithochrome of the rialto brought from venice a scrollwork clock made by her favorite son who had died young presently these too would be sold she's lost her memory during this last month or so said miss thomas smoothing the fold of sheet over the quilt edge and her interest too but she's wonderfully brave then shouting aren't you grandmother mrs vetter lay apathetic her small withered face turned on one side a hand under her cheek distance was in her eyes she paid no attention or had not heard she looked at marie and the nurse as if they had no meaning or reality what was she thinking marie wondered a cornflower blue her eyes were and still so extraordinarily young and innocent there was a long silence during which the squirrel in the maple tree began scolding marie looking down through the screened window under the lowered curtain saw a black cat cross the lawn pretending to be indifferent he sat down put back first one ear then the other looked up into the tree blinking affectionate green eyes then trudged away disillusioned and weary she ought to have brought something for grandmother but then she had hardly had time in the subway it was true at that little shop but just then the watertown car had come grinding round the turn she would have had had to wait fifteen minutes for another besides grandmother always had more flowers than she could use and what except hothouse grapes could she eat i meant to bring you some grapes granny but i didn't have time she said mrs vetter seemed to go on listening after the remark was finished as if she still had it somewhere and was giving it slowly and with difficulty all her attention mr sill gave me those roses she brought out at last she did not turn toward them they stood on the desk but simply assumed that marie must have seen them he was here yesterday what's he doing now that he's left the church what i don't know teaching i think how's paul it always annoyed marie when grandmother inquired about her husband oh he's all right that's good 
grandmother sighed and looked away at the viney wallpaper. I went to New York last week, Granny. New York? Went to New York? Yes, to see Alice, and a queer thing happened to me. There was no response in the blue eyes. Do you hear me? No. I say a queer thing happened to me in New York. While I was staying with Alice, I got a letter from Sarah Albright. You remember Sarah Albright, that little girl I used to play with in Chicago? I hadn't seen her or heard from her since I was ten. The last time I ever saw her was the day we played hooky from school and ran off and got lost somewhere out by Winnetka. We got home about eleven o'clock at night. Well, in her letter, she said she was in New York for a visit and wondered if I could come down from Fall River to see her. So I went to see her. Wasn't it exciting? She's huge, very fat. I think I'd have known her, though. She's married to a lawyer and has three children and paints pictures. It was interesting to hear all about all the Chicago people I knew. Grandmother stared, immobile. Who did you say looked after little Kate? She quavered. Paul's mother. Marie felt herself flushing. Did grandmother intend? But the old face was merely tired and expressionless. What was the queer thing that happened to you in New York? Marie's heart contracted. She moistened her lips and repeated the story, conscious of Miss Thomas's attention. But grandmother, she saw, did not listen after the first word or two, did not understand, merely rested her faded blue eyes on Marie's, as if it was not the story she was so darkly struggling to understand, but Marie herself. What was it she wanted so? What was it she was trying to see? Life? Her own life, embodied now in Marie and little Kate? Was she trying dimly to touch something which eluded her grasp, to feel something which she could not see? She made no comment, but presently her eyes again slowly filled with tears, became intolerably bright, and suddenly she cried out, weeping, I can't! die i can't die i want to die and i can't she wept almost soundlessly the tears running down the wrinkles of her cheeks miss thomas held up one finger sternly grandmother shame on you you promised me not to cry and now look at you crying like this for nothing at all she's greatly changed marie murmured to the nurse it seems to me that she's seriously worse don't you think Miss Thomas shook her head. Oh, no, she's very strong still. I don't see why she shouldn't live through the winter. A little later, Marie, looking at her watch, said that she must run to catch her train. She would barely have time. She kissed the sunken mouth once more, patted the cool hand. Out of the brimmed eyes, death looked up consciously and clearly. But Grandmother said nothing but, Goodbye, Marie. Three. Tom was walking up and down in the little alley that led to the theater, looking into shop windows. When he saw her, he came towards her, grinning in his one-sided, freckled way. She felt that she had never liked him so much. "'On that corner, a rose, if you like,' he said without preliminaries, "'or on this, a cup of coffee.' 
Coffee. I've had an awful time. Awful, was it? Why on earth do you go? Partly because it gives me such a good alibi. Everybody thinks I'm spending the whole afternoon in Watertown. Tom smiled at her gratefully. They went into the lunchroom. But it's horrible somehow, Marie went on after a moment, stirring the cup of coffee which had been brought to the mahogany counter. She's dying, really dying. She said a most dreadful thing. And I lied cheerfully about the train and came gaily away to meet you of whom not one of my family or friends ever heard. Don't you think it's horrible? Tom stared at his coffee. It's the way things are, he said slowly. Presently they walked down the sloping dark aisle of the vaudeville theatre, looking for seats. Here are two, said Tom. A black-faced singer on the stage was singing coarsely. The blinding disc of spotlight, with its chromatic red edge, illuminated his bluish makeup, made his tongue an unnatural pink, sparkled the gold fillings in his wide teeth. Hot lips, he intoned, grinning, that are pips, and no more conscience than a snake has hips. Tom took her gloved hand inserted his finger in the opening and stroked her palm a delicious feeling of weakness dissolution came over her life suddenly seemed to her extraordinarily complex beautiful and miserable by the waters of watertown we sat down and wept yea we wept when we remembered boston End of The Last Visit by Conrad Aiken